Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Tuesday, April 7th. We begin with a look at Green Shirt Day, which aims to raise awareness about organ donation and encourage more people to register as donors. The day honours the memory of Humboldt Broncos bus crash victim Logan Boulay. We speak with Logan's dad, Toby. Next, we're joined by Mercedes Stevenson, Global's Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Mercedes brings us an update on how the Canada Emergency Response Benefit rollout is working as we move into day two of the program. Then we look at the impact the coronavirus crisis is having on local businesses. Sandeep Lali, President and CEO of the Calgary Chamber of Commerce, has the latest, including how the Chamber has had to adapt during this time. The hotel industry has been hit very hard by the pandemic. We'll hear from the president of Alberta's Hotel and Lodging Association about the state of the business. It's a fact of life these days in isolation, feeling bored. We catch up with a psychologist who breaks down what boredom means and why it may not be such a bad thing after all. And finally, working from home can be a welcome change for many, but it can also be a pain in the neck for others. We chat with an ergonomics professional on how to keep healthy in the home office. 818 on the morning news, Green Shirt Day aims to raise awareness about organ donation and encourage more people to register as donors. Green Shirt Day is held in honor of Humboldt Broncos bus crash victim, Logan Boulay. We're joined now by Logan's father, Toby Boulay. Thank you for joining us today, Toby. Good morning. Thank you for having me on your show today. Toby, we all know about the horrific um, incident that happened two years ago yesterday, but I want to take you back further, and and, uh, if you can tell us, uh, about the time when Logan had explained or brought up in conversation that he uh, was an organ donor and decided to take that route. Do you remember the conversation of what the, what uh, spurned it? I remember it very clearly. We're sitting on our deck, our back deck, in August. don't remember the exact day. And we're just hanging out, having a beer, had a hot tub. Who knows what we had actually done? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, just out of the blue, he says, I'm going to register to be an organ donor. And I said, that's awesome. And he said, I'm going to register to be one because of Rick and donated his, eye, his, his organs and saved six lives, so can I. I said, well, no one's going to want your organs when you're 80. And we laughed. <laughs> laugh. He said, no, it's going to happen. And then the next part of that is that, well, we didn't know this, is that on uh, the week before Logan's 21st birthday, his billet brother, McLaren, who was 13 at that time, they'd done some errands with Logan's little Jetta, and he's bugging at Logan. Like, what are you going to do on your 21st birthday? Like, what are you going to do? Like, a 13-year-old boy, like, trying to get out information. <laughs> Logan just looked at him and said, no, I'm going to register to be an organ donor on my birthday. Sign my donor card. McLaren said, that's kind of creepy. And Logan goes, no. Rick can save six lives, so can I. And then they, he passed on April 7th. Toby, remind us who Logan was, what kind of a, a, a young man he was, and, and why, what do you think he'd be, he'd be thinking if he, you know, if he could be here today seeing what impact he actually has had? This is his dad talking. So Logan was a great young man. He was kind, he was caring, he was big and he was strong. And he made a point of including everyone. We've got so many messages from people. We started a little book where people leave messages for us about how Logan would include people and accept people and look after people and just do all those things. And he was a great conversationalist. We've had many people from seniors down to little kids to say, Logan always had time to stop and talk and visit with me and make me feel better that day. I just got a text this morning from a, a dad that played, his son played hockey with the Broncos. And he said that, his, I don't know, he just got it like an hour ago. He said, um, his, his son mentioned that Logan was, they loved it when Logan was in the lineup, not injured because they all had way more space to play. Logan made it safer out there. So I'm not quite sure what that meant exactly. He only fought three times, but 
Logan was known to be quite aggressive when he had to be aggressive. He was a great kid. Toby, when you're uh, online or flipping through the newspaper or watching the news and hear of someone's life uh, being saved by organ donation, uh, what does that mean to you, knowing that uh, Logan may have had part of, of that decision for that person who did donate their organs? At the beginning, when people would that, that exact issue you're talking about, and then when people come up and thank us, we had lots of trouble. I did for about eight months, and then I began to realize that people that have received an organ are incredibly thankful people. They, they've been given a, a second chance to, to have fulfill, a fulfilled life. And so now I'm immensely proud of all angel donors and particularly proud of living live donors that donate part of their liver. Or I had a lady contact me about two weeks ago that she just donated a one of her kidneys to an anonymous person that needed it. She just anonymously donated her kidney. And just amazes me what people do and how they help the other people out. And particularly in this time of this pandemic, it's like amazing how people come together and work together. Well, Toby, Logan was an inspiration. His memory is going to live forever because of what he did. I can't even imagine as a parent what you go through, you know, as we, we remember as a nation what happened, you know, two years ago yesterday. But it's got to be fulfilling for you. So thank you so much for joining us and just reminding us about Logan and, and how important Green Shirt Day is. Thank you very much. I'm so glad I could be on your show this morning. That's Toby Blay, uh, Boulay, who's the father, of course, of Logan Boulay. Well, Canada, the federal government has rolled out its financial assistance program. Today will be day two for Canadians struggling with the COVID-19 pandemic's economic aftershocks. To talk about how day one went, we're joined this morning by Mercedes Stevenson, Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global News, host of the West Block. Hi, Mercedes. Hi, Sue. Uh, was it a busy one online? Did the, did the system crash is what I would like to know. The system did not crash, which uh, <laughs> was impressive, yeah. considering almost 795,000 people were on it. Uh, yeah, that, and that's just people who were born between January and March, because you had to have a birthday in those months to apply yesterday. If your birthday is in April, May, or June, today is the day that you can apply. So each day is staggered by birth month because there are literally millions of Canadians who are expected to apply for this program. They don't want the system to crash. So they're asking people to do it by birth month. You get a little bit of order there. And then once you apply, you'll get your check within three to five days if you apply online. If you call and apply on the phone, you're looking at around 10 to 12 days to get that check. Okay, so if you're born in April, May, and June, today is the day. And just to recap, who qualifies and, and who doesn't within this benefit? So to qualify, you have to be in Canada, which most of your listeners would be. You have to have no income at all uh, for, for the previous 14 days. This is something that may change, but the current rules say if you've had any kind of income, even an hour or two of work and you got paid for it, then you don't qualify for the program. You have to have lost your job as a direct result of COVID-19. So if you are, have been laid off, or if you're not able to go to work because all the schools are shut down, so you're home looking after your kids because there's no child care with social distancing. If you are in quarantine or you're ill with COVID-19 or you're caring for someone who's ill with COVID-19, all of those people apply. It doesn't matter if you're self-employed, if you're a wage earner, if you're part of the gig economy, freelancers, contractors, people who normally don't actually qualify for EI because of that, do qualify for this program. Uh, so it is much wider ranging, but there's still a lot of folks who are left out. Some are students, 
uh, who were had employment lined up, it's now been cancelled, they don't fall into this program. Uh, and there's also some concern that those who, you know, were working part-time to supplement their jobs don't fall into it. Prime Minister says he's hearing all of that. He's listening. They're looking to update it. Um, but that's where the program is at now. I would expect that we're going to see further changes. We've already seen significant changes uh, as the week progresses. We'll listen for that at 9.15 when uh, we carry his press conference live. Uh, just kind of switching gears to the N95 mask issue seems to be resolved now. What ended up happening? We're going to get them here in Canada. Yes, so the good news is that those masks are going to be on their way. The White House and 3M came to a deal. Uh, basically, 3M has managed to convince the White House they are quite capable of providing masks to Canada and Latin America and other countries um, and still meeting American demand. So 3M is going to pull in a bunch of masks from their Chinese facilities for the U.S. That means they will be able to ship to Canada and Latin America. Um, Canada was really playing the national interest card on this and saying, look, we're your friends and neighbors. It's not in your interest if we don't have the mask that we mm-hmm. need. We're not a competitor here. Um, but Christia Freeland, the Deputy Prime Minister, I thought described it really well yesterday. She said it's basically the Wild West out there trying to get this personal protective equipment. I mean, there's all kinds of stories about countries swiping and pirating basically other countries' uh, materials off the tarmac wow. at airports. Um, so what the good news is that we, we are expecting uh, those shipments with 3M. We're also expecting shipments from China, uh, which is where most of the federal pile will come from. And we are expecting millions of those masks to arrive this week. Good. Thank you very, t- uh, very much for your time this morning, Mercedes. Thanks, guys. That is Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of The West Block. 8-11 now. City Council yesterday agreeing to let homeowners defer their property taxes. But what about businesses to update the COVID-19 effect and tax effect on Calgary's business community? We're joined this morning by Sandeep Lally, President and CEO of the Calgary Chamber. Good morning, Sandeep. Good morning. So what was approved yesterday? Is there any break for business? Absolutely. Um, we had put forward a letter last week to councillors um, along with other advocacy groups um, like Build, for example, and commercial real estate folks to say, let's, you know, give businesses a break here on property tax and have them defer that payment until October. And that's exactly what council has approved is that non-residential property taxes and and residential property taxes have been deferred for payment in October. So this gives the business community time to breathe and rethink and plan for a revamp and not have to worry about making this cash outlay. When you say not have to worry, I mean, obviously, uh, business taxes, property uh, taxes for our businesses has been a front row and center when it comes to concerns (laughs) over the past few years. Uh, So I would think that this is just the maybe the best news. It's like Christmas Day for them during this pandemic. Yeah, you know, like the whole focus as we've been doing these webinars with business owners, um, calling business owners around our Here for YYC initiative, everything has been reduce my fixed costs, reduce my fixed costs, and property tax is a large piece of that fixed cost, along with commercial. So commercial rent was the other thing that we had asked for was a strategy around reducing commercial rent. Um, you know, the feds are looking after payroll. Yes, it's not enough. And no, it wasn't quick enough. Mm-hmm. 
but those things are moving and so yes this is a this is a christmas day win for San- property tax sandeep i wanted to ask you there are some saying that you know property taxes should just be perhaps forgiven completely for calgary businesses given the state of things before covid19 what's your thought on that yeah you know it's funny that came up uh last few uh, webinars for us as well around debt forgiveness like as well as property tax forgiveness because at the end of the day like the ramp up is going to be at a 30 percent pace to a 50 percent pace is what our business owners are telling us so how are we going to have revenues at the same level so we're going to need some debt forgiveness or we're going to need some leniency and that's why we had asked for a a phase tax program. Yes, we've been very critical of those before, but this is a pandemic. This is different. This is not due to, you know, mismanagement of city finances or others, other things. So that's that's the piece that the business owners will be looking for. Quite frankly, for a business perspective, deferring property tax was a very low-hanging fruit. Very much appreciated, but we do need to see a line of sight to how you're going to help us revamp as well because everybody in the, is going to be coming for money, debt payments, property tax payments, payroll, you know, so we're looking at that mid and long-term recovery as well. Sandeep, uh, we've been talking to businesses oh, quite a few over the past uh, several weeks here on the morning news about how they've adapted. And I would mm-hmm. think uh, to a certain extent, the chamber is no different. How does a uh, business look like in the chamber right now, as far as people working from home and uh, providing the same amount of services? Are you, uh, is that a possibility for you folks? Yeah, you know, our revenue stream is zero. Um, We're very thankful for our membership that is continuing, and we are offering the same as well. Let's work with each other. Let's pick it up in September, see what we can do. But we've had to make adjustments ourselves. We had to lay off um, almost 30% of our staff last week, and so everybody is working from home. And like I say, our revenue stream, you know, our power to convene, it is where we would get sponsorship and ticket sales and things. And, and that just is not going to come back. We're actually planning for, you know, an October return into that marketplace. So we're trying to manage our business in a way that gives us some runway, but we definitely are going to be leaning on the business community um, to help us back through, right? Because we're funded by business. We don't get any government funding. So we're very, aware of the fact that um, the people we're servicing are going to be are are in the similar boat to us and so we have to work together and that's why the initiative around here for YYC that's why we're making the calls to business owners um, because we're behaving exactly the same way and it was very difficult obviously to lose people but that's why we're getting business owners to talk about the issues because that makes it more relatable to say how how did you do that you know couple of things came up around, you know, why are we doing still doing personal guarantees? Maybe we shouldn't do that when we come back out of this. Um, why, why doesn't debt forgiveness part of the conversation today um, around uh, employee morale? Uh, we've gotten really great uh, um, inputs around mental health, like Head uh, Adversity is a company here that's offering benefits to the business community. So I'd encourage people to take up um, all those um, benefits that are, we're putting out there from the businesses, and they're for members and non-members as well. So, Well, thanks for that information, Sandy, but we'll continue yeah. the conversation. We'll be chatting with you in the near future, no doubt. Yeah, no, thank you for the opportunity. And I would say uh, 
for business owners. Keep talking to each other. Keep talking to the chamber because we will definitely get through this together. Thanks, Sandy. Okay. That's Sandy Blally, president and CEO of the Calgary Chamber. 618 on the morning news. The hotel industry has been one of the hardest hit by COVID-19. Thousands of hotel closures and over 250,000 job losses. In Alberta, these include uh, locally owned small businesses. To learn more about how this industry is coping through the pandemic, we're joined by the president of the Hotel and Lodging Association of Canada, Dave Kaiser. Good morning, Dave. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. Dave, uh, do you think uh, you could ever compare this to anything you've experienced or, for that matter, the Alberta and the Canadian hotel industry? Uh, this has to be the hardest hit uh, in the history of an industry like hotels. Uh, no no question. No, I, I've never seen anything like it. Our, our industry's never experienced anything like it. Essentially, you know, our, our business has pretty much been shut down. Um, we've got you know, over 90-some percent of the staff laid off here in Alberta. We've got hotel occupancies, you know, below 5%. You know, Calgary is an example, but I'm sure well below 3%. And we've got over half the rooms in, in the province closed and many properties completely closed. It's just shocking, Dave. I know the government, you know, there was talk about uh, some of the homeless folks that they were talking about putting them in hotel rooms. Would that have been a benefit to you? Because I know it was the province that said, no, we're not going to go that route at this point. Well, I mean, we've um, been working with the province, and um, we've, you know, they have a program uh, there through the Alberta Emergency Response Management Agency where hotels can load their information into a a database and, um, you know, put up whatever offers of support they can provide as a facility. So we know a number of hotels have done that, and I'm aware uh, that there is a hotel, I believe, that's working with the Calgary Homeless Foundation. Um, undisclosed location, um, but we do know that there are a number of hotels across the property that are that are willing to, you know, p- uh, provide support. Dave, we don't want to, you know, make light of or uh, say it's not so bad for the big chains, but those big chains that might have, you know, hundreds of hotels across North America, if not thousands around the world. That that that's one thing. But how about those locally owned uh, businesses? Like I'm thinking boutique. Mm-hmm. hotels uh, with a handful of rooms. That's got to be t- devastating and, and might not come back from this. Yeah, no no question. But I, maybe I, just a bit of a misperception is that, you know, people, as you say, think of the big chains, but the reality is that um, 87% of hotels are actually privately owned. You know, a lot of times they're family businesses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the chain or the brand that you see in the hotel is, is really just a franchise. Um, the franchise doesn't own the property. So the vast majority of uh, hotels in Canada, quite frankly, are own, you know, they're small, medium-sized family businesses. Um, and they just, you know, they, they, they're a franchisee of, of a major brand. So, so I think that's, that's something that many people don't realize mm-hmm. when they drive by a hotel that says Holiday Inn or Marriott right. or Best Western, that it, it's likely somebody in their own, could be somebody in their own community that owns that property. Yeah, I didn't realize that either, Dave. So is the government helping in any way, shape, or form to, you know, to give a little bit of a boost to the hotel industry at this point? Um, yes. I mean, we've been working hard through the Hotel Association of Canada to, um, you know, to get support for liquidity. That's really the, the biggest issue we have uh, is, you know, hotels, of course, the revenues have been shut right down and still the bills are there to pay. So, so you know, getting getting loans and and, and deferrals on on um, you know one thing we've pushed hard on is any sort of 
tax or anything that that can stay that those dollars can stay in the hands of a of a, of a hotel for now to help pay bills um then, then that's something that we've been pushing for um so again we've been working at uh, in alberta at, you know with the province and, and federally uh, with the um like you know department of finance and um but you know i, I think the concern is 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 are we going to get enough and can it get to hotels that need it quickly enough? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the longer we stay in the situation, the more dire it is. Tough time right now, and I'm sure all Calgarians, Albertans, and Canadians will come out in full force uh, when they're able to uh, visit our fine nation again uh, as tourists in our own country. Thank you so much, Dave. Yeah, just a clarification. I'm, I'm the president of the Alberta Hotel mm-hmm. Lodging Association. I think you said Canada at the start. So I'm giving I you a lot to... of credit, Dave. <laughs> You're ready for a promotion. You got a promotion, Dave. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're members of the federal or national association, and we work collaboratively with them. So, uh, um, again, appreciate uh, having me on today. Good stuff, and thanks for the info. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you. That is Dave Kaiser, president of the Hotel and Lodging Association of Alberta. 709 on the morning news. For many people, self-isolation during the COVID-19 pandemic has led to a great deal of boredom. Boredom might sound bad, but it has its positive aspects. We are joined by a psychology professor at the University of Waterloo and co-author of the upcoming book, Out of My Skull. The psychology of boredom uh, boredom is James Dankert. Good morning, James. Good morning. Well, let's talk about this because, uh, you know, uh, reading some of your writings on boredom, you actually, and it can be painful, you, you compare it to physical pain, the mental boredom we feel. How, how, do you, how do you draw that comparison? Right, well, the, the function of pain is not to make us feel hurt. The function of pain is to sort of get us into action, right? So if you've just sliced your finger while cutting onions in the kitchen, then you need to remove the knife and, and go and try and, and, and find something to, to cover up the cut. If you you know, having a headache, you, you, the headache doesn't function to, to cause you pain. It functions to get you to go and find some Tylenol or Advil and, and do something about it. So it's a call to action, and in the same way, boredom is also a call to action. It's not to make us bored. It's to get us to act and do something more meaningful or satisfying to us. Because whatever we're doing right now, boredom is telling you it's not enough. So we need to be more engaged when we're bored, and that could be something physical, but it also could be something men- mental, correct? Absolutely. I mean, how, what you find engaging is really unique to you. It's in a similar way to, to happiness. You know, what makes you happy is really unique to you and not something that someone else can sort of impose on you from the outside. So, you know, to a certain extent, it's uh, also when you talk about this isolation and, uh, you know, being physically distanced, uh, a lot of it is uh, not being in control, so that might be uh, part of the impetus behind the boredom. Is that correct? That's right. I, um, when we're bored, I think it's in some sense it's a threat to our sense of of what we'd call um, psychologically we call agency, right? The sense that we are the masters of our own domain, we're the authors of our lives, and so for many people who don't really experience boredom much, now being in social isolation because of the virus, you've had a lot of your daily choices just taken away from you. Um, and that inability to sort of be the person who chooses what you do next can, at first, it might seem frustrating, but eventually it can also sort of lead to boredom. And James, that can also lead to often overeating, maybe drinking too much, that sort of thing. Are, are, there, th- are there tricks or things that we can do to, you know, kind of engage our brain and to really kick things into action? Well, that is a challenge, isn't it? To mm-hmm. uh, And I don't really have a top 10 list of things that I can tell you that, you know, if you if you follow this list, you'll be fine. 
the key thing, I think, is back on that point of control and feeling like you are the, the author of your own life. So just the only advice I really have is to consciously choose what you do. I think sometimes if we slip into things like just you know, um, binge watching on, on Netflix is fine for a while, but if you did, if that was the only thing you did, I don't think you'd be satisfied. When you mention things like uh, alcohol and, and, and that kind of stuff, I think it's sort of an easy, quick fix, but it's not a long-term fix. And so I think if we just consciously choose what things we're going to do. The other day I decided I was going to bake a cake, which is meaningless in the grand scheme of things, <laughs> but it was the fact that I chose to do it that, that mattered to me and that alleviated my boredom in the moment. And delicious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can we can we tie a procrastination to this? Is, is, is Your uh, conversation uh, sparked something in that I might have a project, like, for example, to clean the garage out. And I say I'm bored, but I'd rather watch Netflix. Can we tie those two together? Well, there certainly is research that shows that people who are prone to experiencing boredom, people who experience boredom a lot and, and feel it fairly intensely, are also a little bit pro more prone to being procrastinators. Um, we talk about this with the phrase that, that you know, if you're prone to boredom, you, you have this, you experience a, a failure to launch, which is to just get on with things. Um, so possibly, um, and, and those, those kinds of things, now that we're sort of stuck in our homes, cleaning out the garage and, and, and cleaning out the basement, your cold storage room, whatever you've got, um, they, they're good things to do. Um, but, but again, it sort of feels like, you know, you're, you're only doing them because you are stuck. And so you have to sort of change your mindset to say, no, I'm not doing it just because I'm stuck. I'm doing it because it needs to be done um, and, and you know, I'll choose when I get around to it. And James, maybe a more important thing is, as you call it, resetting or hitting the reset button and, and really evaluating you and who you are and what you want. That's right. I think that um, one of the things that happens when we feel boredom, it's an unpleasant feeling. None of us really like it, right? And so the tendency when you've got an unpleasant feeling is to just outrun it. But if I go back to the pain example, you know, if you just keep uh, going, reaching for the Tylenol, then you're not thinking carefully about what caused the pain and what you might want to do to try and fix it long term. And the same goes with boredom. Um, you know, if, if I just try and run away from boredom, then I'm not thinking about what it's really trying to tell me, which is what matters to me? What are the goals that are important in my life? Now, we might not be able to achieve all of those goals right now, given that we're isolated, but we can at least think about what matters most to us. You mentioned uh, in some of your writings that, you know, we're not the only ones prone uh, to boredom, that animals uh, experience boredom as well. Yeah, so there's a fantastic study that came out of the University of Guelph a number of years ago that looked at mink, and uh, they, they had two groups of mink that were housed in different types of cages. And so one had a very boring kind of cage with nothing in it that they could interact with, and uh, the other group had an interesting set of cages where they could sort of at least exercise their own agency and, and had some things that they could play with and engage with and so on. And then they, in various ways, tested their behaviour after two weeks of being in these different kinds of cages. And the animals that were in the, the sort of boring environments um, just approached new things regardless of what they were, even new things that normally the animal would avoid. So, for example, the smell of a predator or the shadow of a predator, normally the animal would run away from that. But they were so bored that they ran towards it. Um, and then the other thing that was interesting is that both groups of animals were, were well fed, fully fed, and yet the animals that had been in the boring cages overate uh, treats that were available to them. And so it gets back to that point you just made a little while ago that when we're bored, we can sometimes be at risk of overeating just because 
it's doing something. You're eating, you're having those snacks, and you feel like you're doing something, but you're not really doing something that, that matters much. Time to be more productive, for sure. Thanks for joining us, uh, joining us James. It's a, it's a great discussion and, and certainly food for thought. <laughs> My pleasure. Appreciate it. That's James Dankert. He's a psychology professor at the University of Waterloo and the co-author of the upcoming book called Out of My Skull, The Psychology of Boredom. 609 on the morning news. You may have a less than ideal office set up when working from home and experiencing new body aches and pains. Slouching, sitting too long and being hunched over a laptop screen puts physical stress on your body that you may not notice now but we'll definitely feel later. With help, we're joined by Director of Human Factors and Ergonomics Research Group at Cornell University, Alan Hedge. Good morning, Alan. Good morning. How are you, Andrew? Good. Thank you for taking the time with us. And I'm sure that in your line of work, uh, you're used to talking to people, perhaps maybe even managers of offices to to help with the ergonomics to make sure people can get their job done and stay healthy. Uh, But when people are working from home, it's a different animal, isn't it? It is. It totally is. Um, but some companies actually have sort of done that in the past. They've allocated funds to employees to help them set up a home office and even given them guidance on how to do that. Um, but of course, uh, suddenly now with uh, with this outbreak of the virus, things have just gone ballistic in terms of people trying to work from home. Plus, often people also have to deal with kids being around as well. So the house suddenly gets very crowded. So Alan, what are your recommendations? I mean, ergonomics is a, a term that we hear a lot lately and and it it, it really is yeah. important isn't it in terms of setting up our workspace Absolutely. The area that we're talking about, we call it physical ergonomics. And essentially what that means is we're trying to make sure that you always work with your body in the best positions possible so you cause the least amount of injury risk to your body. Um, And that means that for each individual, if you can spend time working in what we call a neutral posture, that's a a comfortable and more relaxed posture, nothing's bent, twisted, uh, out of shape in any way, then that's going to reduce the chance that you'll get any kind of injury. Plus, you need to break that up by moving around to promote better circulation. But of course, that's often what doesn't happen now in home offices. If you look at workplace offices, you'll see over the years, companies have invested quite heavily in improving the furniture that people have so they can get into those positions for reasonable periods of time at work. But at home, as you said earlier on, people often are just hunched over a laptop or a tablet, not working in a great way. And ultimately, that'll take a a toll on the body. Well, I would think maybe something even as small as saying, "Okay, well, I'm doing it right. I'm sitting at the kitchen table. But your kitchen table, although we haven't seen everybody's kitchen table in their dining rooms and uh, kitchens, um, you know, generally you would sit there maybe for an hour for a meal, maybe not four, six or eight hours at a laptop. Well, absolutely. I mean, so here's number one, you know, laptops are not designed to be good ergonomic uh, devices. Um, They were only ever meant for occasional use, which is why, you know, if you look at a traditional office, people are often working with desktop machines. That goes back to the 1970s, separating the screen and the keyboard is really important because when the keyboard's in a good position, the screen's in a bad position, if the two things are linked together. So if you're sitting at 
your kitchen table, even if your laptop is on, a, on the table that may be at a comfortable height for you to type, the screen will be way too low. Mm. Uh, and your head is something like a five-kilogram bowling ball that's balancing <laughs> on your neck. So, you know, when you lean forwards, that can actually uh, increase the loading. It can become more like a 30-kilogram bowling ball that, that's sort of balancing on your neck. So you'll get a lot of neck strain. The nerves that come down and control the hands are coming out of the spine at the, at the neck. Um, you can cause nerve damage. You can restrict circulation. And, and that's just the start of the things that can go wrong. When you lean forward, you can double the, the forces on the lower back, the compressive forces. Um, the last thing you want is to get any of these kinds of musculoskeletal injuries from working too long in a, in a poor posture. So, Alan, you know, what can we do and, and, and can this lead to long term problems, even if we're just working like this in the short term? Uh, let's take those in reverse. One, yes, it can, <laughs> because um, think of playing sport. You know, I mean, if you're playing a sport and suddenly you get a little injury, you pull a muscle or something, in the long term, it's going to reduce your ability to do things and hopefully you'll recover. Now, with muscles, muscles recover. With injuries to nerves, it can take a lot longer and sometimes you may even require some kind of surgical intervention. Um, so what can you do? Well, okay, you can start off by thinking about what's a neutral posture. How do I sit comfortably and look forwards with my head in a nice balanced position, right? Like you were talking to somebody else at your kitchen table. What you'll find if you're using a laptop or a tablet is putting it on the table is way too low. So first thing is get that up higher. You know, put it on a box, put it on a pile of books, put it somewhere where the screen is comfortable. Of course, in that position, you can't type. <laughs> so now what you do is you buy a, a separate keyboard and a mouse. Um, and these could be USB, they can be Bluetooth, or they can be wireless connect. But, you know, for $100 or, or so, you can get yourself into a much, much better position. Uh, a lot of companies actually will, will refund that or you can even, you know, claim it against taxes or whatever. Uh, but that's absolutely key. Get yourself into that neutral position. And then periodically, every 20, 30 minutes, get up, take a break, walk around. Like I'm talking to you on the phone, but I actually have taken a break. I'm walking around while I'm talking on the phone. Uh, and then I'll sit back down and I'll keep working. So, you know, think of that pattern. I mean, you're, you're not really trying to run a, a marathon here uh, without taking a break. You're trying to work at your best and then take a break and then work at your best again and do that throughout the day. What's interesting is when you think about ergonomics, you mentioned that, uh, you know, additional keyboard, separate keyboard, putting your laptop higher. You said 100 bucks. I think a lot of people think that ergonomics and having an ergonomically correct office or workspace is expensive, but it doesn't have to be if you use the things you have at home, does it? Absolutely, it does not have to be. No, no. Think of it like a, a jigsaw puzzle, right? And I, and I keep coming back to this idea of a neutral posture. If I ask you to sit down in a relaxed way, that's how you should be working. So then you have to say, okay, if I'm going to do that to work, how do I adjust the equipment that I need to use? For example, if your computer, let's say you have a, uh, a laptop computer, but you have voice input to it. You know, you're using one of the voice recognition programs. Put that computer on a pile of books or on a box in front of you and use your voice input to do your emails. <laughs> you, you know, you don't need to always be touching the technology that you're using these days. Um, yeah, 
So it doesn't have to be expensive at all. Think think of all the different parts as parts of the jigsaw puzzle. The ultimate picture is you in a relaxed posture. It's a great way to picture it for sure. Lots of great tips. Thanks for joining us, Alan. My pleasure. Stay healthy. Thank you. You stay healthy too. That's Alan Hedge. He's the director of the Human Factors and Ergonomics Research Group at Cornell University.